on October 3, 1868, the McCandless family sat down to dinner. It would be the last dinner for 22-year-old Nancy Ann McCandless. Her cousin, Zachariah Taylor Hockenberry, was looking in through the window. He was holding a rifle. He was out there because he was a horrible person. He attempted to woo her, his cousin, and she declined. He formed a plan to shoot her in the face, to dismember her so that no one would ever love her. She died a horrific death while her family watched helplessly from the dinner table. So before we get started, I do want to apologize for the audio quality. I purchased a new microphone and I had to get an adapter for it because there's no USB port in my MacBook Air. And I realized that not having a microphone honestly sounds better than having one with those glitches. So I do apologize for that. I hope you guys are enjoying the content anyway and that, you know, I hope you know I appreciate your patience with that. Not super technologically advanced, but I hope that you enjoy the content and the research. I put a lot of hard work into this, so let's get into it. So this episode is not an axe murder, but the last couple episodes have just been really brutal and I think we could use a break. Uh, This one, it's still a murder. It's still tragic, but there's some interesting little pieces here that I really enjoyed reading about and I hope you enjoy listening about. Now, I came upon this case through a photograph, and it's a photograph of a Mr. Zachary Taylor Hockenberry. Now, this is the perpetrator of the crime, and I don't typically, you know, like, it's not like I put murderer's pictures up on my wall, but I purchased it because there's some interesting writing around the photograph, and there's also, it came with an original newspaper clipping from the case, and I will share that later on. But let's talk about this writing around the photograph, and I will share it on the Axe Murder Diaries Instagram page. Um, so it's written in cursive, and it's a little hard to read, So, but bear with me. It says, Taylor Hockenberry, hung in Butler for shooting a McCandless girl. She had spurned his love, and he meant only to disfigure her, so that no one else would have her, according to his confession. The only Hockenberry person to have died for love. Now, (laughs) you hear that and you think perhaps they were dating or he was trying to court her or what, but it's deeply disturbing that it says that he died for love. Um... Because one of the first things I read was that they were cousins and they never dated. And some articles even call her his girlfriend, saying that he shot his girlfriend. Um, that is deeply disturbing and messed up. So let's, let's uh, correct that history here and tell the story of this asshole who shot his cousin because he wanted to date her. Monday, April 19th, 1869. The jury is selected and Taylor Hockenberry enters his plea. 
The following excerpts are from the Pittsburgh Weekly Gazette, and we'll start with The Murder of His Cousin. Zachary Taylor Hockenberry is confined on charge of murder. He has been in this place nine months, was arrested on charge of shooting Miss McCandless, his cousin, a beautiful girl, with whom he was madly in love. That is not love. He was but 19 years of age when the deed was done, is a flaxen-haired, blue-eyed boy whom one might meet many times without other than favorable impressions. Now, can we stop romanticizing and talking about the good features of murderers, please? At two o'clock, the prisoner, Z. Taylor Hockenbury, was brought in by the sheriff and took his seat by his counsel. He was summoned to stand up, which he did, trembling and growing red and white by turns. His counsel, J. Thompson Esquire, read an affidavit of the prisoner, made six months ago, asking a postponement of his trial because of the absence of two witnesses, by whom he expects to prove an alibi. Sure. His petition had been granted. Nice. The sheriff had failed to find the parties who had immigrated to Kansas, and they were lost sight of, and Mr. Thompson moved for a further postponement of the trial, in the hope of finding those witnesses. I'm sorry if you heard that car outside. The court overruled the motion on the ground, that there was no reasonable hope that these witnesses could be found. The prisoner was then ordered to stand and hold up his hand while the indictment was read by the clerk of the court. For some ten minutes of the reading, his face and hands turned blue, and he trembled so as to require support by leaning on the desk. But as the absurd repetitions of the indictment were poured out on his devoted head, page after page he grew red and white by turns. The perspiration stood in beads on his face, and after the reading had continued half an hour, his counsel excused the other half, and to the summons of guilty or not guilty, he pled not guilty promptly. And with an air of innocence, James Wilson, his guardian and next friend, sat with him and his attorneys. The father of the murdered girl also sat with the prosecuting attorneys. The afternoon was spent from two until four o'clock in trying to find a jury, but so many had formed opinions that the whole panel was exhausted and only nine jurors found when the court ordered talisman. The doors were closed to prevent the escape of the men present and messengers sent out to the highways and byways to press into service through enough to form an acceptable panel. The prosecution evinced no bloodthirstiness and in exhausting the panel only asked three if they were conscientiously opposed to capital punishment. Mr. McCandless, the Bree father, is a small, gray-haired man with delicate features and benevolent blue eyes. The prisoner is his nephew and was brought up in his family. Now, this writer of this article has an interesting opinion. I notice in looking at those men called up as jurors that the best faces and the most intellectual heads are on the shoulders of those men who have conscientious scruples about the death penalty. And I have no doubt that in 100 years, the people will look back upon such trials as this. We now look back, as we now look back to the New England trials for witchcraft. Now, it is the year 2023. It's been over 100 years. And... No, we do not look at questioning the death penalty or planning on using the death penalty 
on men who murder women brutally because she sparred his advances the same way that we look upon women and men who were hanged and stoned because they were accused of being witches because people wanted their land. That is completely different. (laughs) Tuesday, April 20th, 1869. Day two of the trial. The jury was sworn in and the court clerk read, Charge upon their oaths and affirmations that he, the said Zachary Taylor Hockenbury, aforesaid, did make an assault with a pistol of the value of one dollar, charged with twenty-five leaden shots, and of, it, of his malice aforethought, feloniously did kill and murder the said Mary Ann McCandless, contrary to the act of assembly and against the peace of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. During the recital of the shocking details, Hockenberry was in such evident distress that he was a pitiable spectacle. His features are heavy and of rather a sensual and solid type, but still would contradict such cowardly depravity as is laid to his charge. His face and neck and hands were purple a greater part of the time of Mr. Riddle's speech. Sometimes I think him in danger of apoplexy, and if the prosecution succeed in fastening the crime upon him, there are features in his case which must cut him off from the romantic interests which surrounds distracted lovers. Um, this was not a romantic interest. And I think this, this writer here from the Pittsburgh Weekly Gazette has some interesting opinions for sure. Nancy Ann McCandless's father testified. He said, She came to her death on the evening of the 3rd of November, 1868. Now, I will say that her headstone says that she died on October 3rd. And this article also says that her father was not sure how old she was, either 21 or 25. So who knows if this is a misprint or what. But to continue. Between 7 and 8 o'clock, by a shot fired through the window while we were at supper, We had just begun to eat. The shot shocked me. I put my hand to my head, found blood on my head, and a slight wound in the back and on the top of the head, near the side next to my daughter, Nancy. She was inclined to one side. I did not know that she was hurt, but thought it was myself until my daughter Mary called out, Anne's shot. Mother's got around to her first and raised her head. It was all bleeding. I noticed blood on the top of her head. I put my hand on her head to see if the bone was broken and found it was. I looked down into her face and I saw the wounds. I saw it was fatal. I went to the door and hissed the dog. He went round the house to the side where the murderer had been, but would not bark. I find it interesting that the dog wasn't barking at whoever was creeping around the house um, to shoot inside the house. To me, that would suggest that the dog was familiar with that person. To continue, he came back and seemed to feel that he would not bother. I did not know what to do. There was no one there but our family and Mrs. Graham. I was sitting at the end of the table with my back to the door. My daughter Nancy was on my right hand. Mary was opposite me. 
My wife and Mrs. Graham opposite Nancy Ann, who was on my left hand. I noticed on the floor the piece that Nancy had been eating. By the time I got up and round to her, she was falling on the floor. Her mother was holding up her head. I did not see her breathe afterward and saw that it was death. The room is about 12 by 16. The table was near the center. I noticed afterward that the shot came at an angle and some struck the door. The shot struck her on the left side of the head and on the top, tearing the flesh on the top and making a large hole in the left temple. There were numerous shots on the sides of the head. The doctors can tell you easier than I. I saw she was gone and left her to see if I could find the murderer. He then went on to describe what the family had partaken in that evening. That evening, my two daughters and I went to an orchard I have at some distance. We succeeded in getting a pretty good load of apples. The girls got some of the larger ones to pair. The small ones were for cider. We were pretty late getting home. I said we would not bring them in that night, but one of the girls, it was Nancy Ann, said we had better bring in the bags before supper. I said I would, if she would, get a candle. She did, and held it on the end of the porch. Mary climbed on the wagon and helped me to get the bags on my shoulder, and I took them in. Soon after the moon got above the trees, supper was ready soon after. While we were taking in the apples, we heard a quick step, and someone said there was someone going to the church. It was Mary said this. The road is so near the house that one can easily hear one walk in the road. There is an enclosure around the house, on the north side, next to the road. The fence is low, so that one can step over it. From the road to the window into which the shot was fired, it is about a rod. The ground rises from the house to the road. There is a level walk, about two feet close to the house, made to keep the damp off. The shot came through the middle part of the lower sash. I noticed my wife was saying, Oh God, who has murdered my child? I went forward to hunt some person for to help. They were so distressed there. I went to Mr. Barclay's, his house is to the eastward. I did not stay long. I left the gun and revolver with the family and told them to use them should anything occur. I took one with me. Mr. Barclay came first. The news soon spread, for the people were coming from church, and I went out and told them that murder had been committed. An inquest was held next morning. The prisoner was arrested before I knew it. Mr. Fligger, the constable, brought him to our house. Prisoner's counsel objected to asking witness what the prisoner said when brought there. The court ruled that he might describe the manner of the prisoner. He appeared as if he did not want to go near the dead person. He had been familiar in the family, did not go near him. He was much excited, but appeared to bear up very strong against it. Mr. Shaner asked him if he had been at preaching last night, and he said he was. Now, let's talk about an incident that happened years before the murder. Mr. McCandless then stated that in June... Three years ago next June, a man raised the window sash exhibited in court, reached in and opened the door, went through a little hall and fired a gun over the bed in which both his daughters slept. The ball struck near a clock by the head of the bed 
And Mary sat up in bed and said, They are in the house. Anne said, Lay down. She did so, and just then a second shot was fired. Both shots crossed just over the girls' heads, about six inches above them. Before firing each time, the person firing said, Boo, boo. The first shot woke witness, and he thought the firing was out of doors. At the second, he sprang out of bed, got his gun, which was without a load, and gave chase to the unseen person who fled before him and showed great skill and ease in getting out of the house. Notwithstanding, it was so dark that witness ran against the table, which stood in the center of the room through which they passed. Witness did not know that the gun had been loaded until afterwards. So essentially after this horrific shooting in the middle of the night, where luckily no one died that time, um, Taylor came over like the next day <laughs> to the McCandless house and was talking to Mr. McCandless about it. They were talking of this mysterious shooting in another room when prisoner said to witness, come, I can show you where the ball struck, then went in and pointed out the holes. Does not remember talking with the prisoner on the subject before the time of showing him the holes in the wall. Does not remember that prisoner had been in the house after the shooting and before the time of pointing out the holes. Prisoner knew where each member of the family slept. He had been in the same place and the girl slept in that place when prisoner lived in the family. When the person firing thus in the dark said, boo, boo, witness thought the voice was familiar. He is not so certain of hearing the boo, boo before the first shot, but the second boo, boo was very plain and very terrifying when quickly followed by the shot, did not follow the retreating footsteps out of doors. The night was very dark and he had no load in his gun. So six weeks prior to the murder, Mr. McCandless stated that his wife and daughter, Mary, went to preaching, leaving Nancy and an aged woman in the house. When he came home, he was told that someone had forcibly entered his house. He found that the front door had been forced open by some instrument, which had been thrust between the door and panel. Someone had tried to force the lock of the bureau. He believed that the instrument in both cases was a hatchet. He went to church in an open farm wagon. He started about nine o'clock in the morning and returned about four o'clock in the afternoon. His barn was burned. It was about two weeks after the shooting in his house. And it was but a few days after the burning of the barn that the prisoner showed him the holes in the wall. The putty was picked off a pane of glass in another window the night the barn was burned. He thought the person wanted to get his arm in to unlock a door on the opposite side of the house. From that by which the person entered who did the firing, he discovered his barn on fire about 10 o'clock and the next morning found this trace of an attempt at a second forcible entry. Taylor is his wife's nephew. There was very little trouble between the prisoner and witness's family. The first year he received board, clothing, and schooling. When he grew older, he went to seek his fortune, and he knew of no quarrel up to the time of the murder. After the barn was burned, he raised another, and Taylor was at the raising, and helped with the work. He was often there after the man came with a false face, came to visit them as usual. 
was generally invited to remain and eat with the family. So he burned down the barn and then helped build a new one. What, what, what a nice guy. Wednesday, April 21st, 1869, day three of the trial. Hannah McCandless, mother of Nancy Ann McCandless, testifies. And this is per the Pittsburgh Weekly Gazette, April 24th, 1869. Just after they sat down to supper, she heard a shot. Her daughter was shot. Did not see her fall, but heard Mary say, Nancy's shot. Went to her and found her on the floor. Kind of gathered her up sitting like, and found her all bleeding, thought she maybe breathed twice, but the blood was gushing out of her nose, so she could not tell. Did not examine the wounds, but could see that her head was all torn. Taylor Hockenberry came there that night after the murder. He stood outside looking in. I went up to him and said, Taylor, what villain has given me this sore, troubled heart and murdered my innocent child? He made no reply. He went into the house, but did not go up to the corpse, watched to see what he would do. He did not go up to look at her, but dodged around behind the other people and looked as if he wanted to see her. That was all I said to him. The first that I had seen him after the accident was when he stood outside the door. He said nothing to me, made no inquiry, was present and saw him when he was brought in after the inquest. Next day, did not speak to him and have not spoke to him since. When I spoke to him that night, he hung his head and said nothing. Witness's reason for watching Hockenberry was something that Mary told her after Anne was killed. It was maybe not 15 minutes, maybe not 5 minutes, after the murder, that Mary told her this something. Had not left the room, had asked Mary to bring water, and she ran out and brought some. Witness washed the blood off Nancy's face were all in an uproar, was lamenting, cannot describe what was going on there. Now, I can't even imagine witnessing your daughter shot in the face. Um, uh, it's horrific. Witness described the shooting. The means used to enter the rooms, beds, etc., just as her husband had done. The balls went across the bed. The first one struck the wall above the clock. The other about eight inches above the bed and about as far below the head as would have made the ball strike about the shoulders of the person sleeping in it. Was awake when the first shot was fired, but did not hear the person enter the house. It was done very quietly. Before the second shot was fired, there was a sound like boo-hoo. Could not recognize the voice, but it did run in her mind that she had heard it before. Could not tell for sure that the voice called up any person. Could not make it out for certain. The voice did not appear like a strange voice. Cannot mind that like they cannot mind that they examined the walls of the room next day for marks of balls. Searched the walls in the entry to see if there was any marks of powder. Did not think of anyone being so cruel as to fire balls among us. Did not think of looking over the girls' heads. It was Taylor Hockenberry who first showed us the marks of the balls. Witness and her husband were present in another room with Taylor, talking about the shooting. They were saying that they could not see any bullet holes. He said, I can show you bullet holes. 
as soon as he said this, went with him into the room, and he just pointed out the two places. Do not remember if the girls were with us. Defendant had been in the house after the shooting. Before this time, cannot just think of when he was there. He was in the habit of coming so often, cannot just remember about this times of coming, his times of coming. Could not tell if he was in this room before that time after the shooting. Witness was generally at home. Might have been at preaching in the, that time. Did not ask him when he had seen the holes, and he did not explain. It was after Hockenberry showed the holes that Simon Alexander picked out a bullet from one of them. The witness was seriously troubled in trying to give in her testimony about the breaking open of the house of the Sabbath. She found, on coming from church, that her married daughter, Lucinda, was there, having come in consequence of the breaking. The door had been forced open by a hatchet and an effort made to force the lock of a bureau. Cross-examination It was Anne slept on the front of the bed. She was nearest the door. The way witness know that it was the first shot that struck high beside the clock is that Nancy said she heard the clock jingle when it struck. The paper on the wall is all spotted, could not easily distinguish the holes from the spots. The bureau attempted to be forced open, stands in the same room where the firing was done, kept money in that drawer. There might have been $300 in it at that time, saw nothing of any attempt to force any other drawer, say it was a hatchet used, because Anne told Witness it was a hatchet the man had used. Taylor lived with Witness, was very quiet, did not always answer when spoken to, never went off to frolics. <laughs> Witness was very much confused the evening of the murder, said nothing to Taylor that evening but what she had stated, did not shake hands with him, did not swear, before the inquest that she shook hands with him. The testimony of Mary McCandless, sister of Nancy Ann McCandless. She described the position of the family at table the evening of the murder, just as the other two witnesses had done. Did not see Annie fall. Was just going to say to Annie that there was some more of Taylor's shooting. Counsel objected and this was stricken out. Saw her on the floor and said to mother, Annie shot. Mother went to her, told me to go and fetch some water, fetch the water and went away again, for the sight was so horrible that I didn't like to witness it. Went out into the kitchen. That was all I know. Observed mother washing Annie with the water. She had just raised her, sitting up like, and was washing the blood off her. Heard no noise before the firing. No barking of the dog. No curtains on the window. The window paper was rolled up. Attention had not been called to the window before the shooting. Was so badly scared that she did not know what her father did. Do not know if he went to the neighbors. Yes, father did go to Barclays. Did not see Taylor Hockenberry there that night. Saw him come to the house next morning. He was with the constable. Did not speak to him. Saw him come into the house. Did not hear him say anything. On the evening before, Annie and father and I were gathering apples. It was beginning to get dark. Father brought in the apples. Annie held the candle. I helped father to shoulder the apples. Saw a man go down the road toward the church. Did not know who it was. Sister did not say that she saw him. Saw the man by the light of the candle. He was walking fast. Do not know for certain how long that was before the shot was fired. Supposed it was a half hour. Witness was asked to state what occurred in the house at the time of the former shooting. Mr. Thompson objected to the defense. For the defense. 
overruled. She and her sister were sleeping in the room with father and mother, heard a shot fired, sat up in the bed. Annie told her to lie down, laid down, and a second shot was fired, knew the shots came from the door by the sound. It made a flash, saw no person. He made a sound, went boo, 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 like it was before the shot was fired. A very short time elapsed between the first and second shot. Had just only laid down. Nothing was said at that time as to who had fired the shot. Nothing was said next day about the holes in the wall. Don't know why Taylor, the prisoner, first showed us the holes. It was the time he showed them to father and mother and sister Annie. I was present that the f was the first time I had seen them. Do not remember the day of the week. He asked if he had seen bullet holes. Father said he had not, and he said he could show them to him. We all went into the room and he showed them. He just went up to the bed and pointed them out. He did not look about much. He said there was a bullet hole, then looked up and said there was the other one. Defendant had not before been in the room after the shooting. That witness knew of had not heard anything at the time of shooting, like balls striking the wall. Observed no jingle or rattle. Does not know why they had not examined the walls. Saw Jimmy Alexander take the ball out. Jimmy worked for father. The ball was taken out of one of the places Taylor had pointed out. He stood on a chair to reach it. She showed on the wall that the other bullet hole was about a foot above the bed. If she had remained sitting up, thinks the ball would have struck her. Defendant lived about the house several years. Was like a member of the family. Went through the house as he wished. He always seemed to be friendly. Sister and he had correspondence by letter knew of him writing to her. She did not write to him. Saw the letters he wrote. She showed them to me. Saw a couple of letters. Read them both. They were dated. Cannot state the date. Remember the first one was in 67. The other in the winter following. Mr. Thompson objected to this question and answer. Overruled. Mr. McJunkin withdrew the question and the answer was struck out. And prosecution submitted proposition in writing. Court adjourned. Court resumes in the afternoon and Mary... Nancy Ann, or Annie's sister, is back on the stand. And she basically describes two letters that Nancy Ann or Annie received from Taylor Hockenberry. And basically, Annie showed her sister the letters and afterwards burned them. She did not write back to Taylor Hockenberry. She obviously did not want to receive these letters, and then Mary, it's, it's a little humorous, describes the letters as of the middling sort. It was common white paper, not letter paper they were written upon, not a whole sheet and doesn't know if they were on half sheets. According to Mary, this is what the first letter said. Anne McCandless, remember me, for you are the only one I love, but I fear you care nothing for me, and for that reason, your life lies in my hands. You may think it is a poor consolation, but it is the best that I have got. Before another shall have thee, I will end thy life, and then myself with my own hand. Excuse me, for the truth had better be known before it is too late. Taylor Hockenberry. The second letter according to Mary McCandless. Anne McCandless. If you loved me as I love you, I would be a happy man. But if not, thy fate lies in the hand of the one that loves thee best. Remember that. Taylor Hockenberry
So let me get this straight. Nancy was receiving threatening letters from Zachary Taylor and for years before the murder, there was a shooting where the perpetrator knew his way around the house in the dark. The barn mysteriously burned down and someone tried to break in with a hatchet while Nancy Ann was home basically alone. Mary also stated that one of the letters stated, I love you mad, Anne, which is gross. Mrs. Ellen Graham called to the stand. On that day, Mr. and Mrs. McCandless and Mary went to church. Anne and witness were left at home to keep house. She was in the kitchen. Anne was in the big room. Witness saw someone come up on the porch in his stocking feet with a big black shawl over his head and fastened down under his chin. He had a hatchet in his hand and came within a few feet of witness. He asked me if the man of the house was at home. I said he was not. Defense objected to hearing conversations. Um, <laughs> if someone came up to me, my house or someone, someone's house, right, the house that I was in, and had a mask over his face and was holding a hatchet and asked if the man of the house was home, I'd say, hell yes, he is, and he has a shotgun. But anyway, witness continued, the man, to the best of her knowledge, had a false face on. It was black. At all events, his hands were black, had a hatchet in his hand. The shawl was close over his head and hung down to his knees. Oh my God, that's fucking creepy. There were socks or stockings on his feet. They were blue or on the blue cast. He was a pretty big sized man, was pretty tall, good size and height. Took it to be a false face he had on. Did not see his hair. Could see his pants below the shawl. They were pretty well scuffed and dark. His hand was black. Could see it when he went to break open the door. He came up the steps onto the porch. She was in the kitchen on the end of the porch, and the door was open. He came within two or three steps of her, past the hall door, and sat still until Anne opened the hall door and then shut it. Oh my god. Witness went into the dining room. He looked round when he heard the door shut, wheeled round, took the hatchet and pried the door open, where Anne went in the dining room door. Witness shut and bolted it. He opened the door from the hall and pointed a revolver at her. She turned round, unfastened the door, and went out the way she had come in, then went to Mr. Roth's, did not see Annie from the time she shut the door until witness came back, was so frightened could not see well, did not go out the way the man came in, but in a different direction, no person came back with her. Mr. Roth came before her. There were several persons there when she got back, but the man was gone, did not look to see what he had done had seen defendant several times before that, had heard him talk some, not much, did not recognize the voice on Sunday, was not so bad scared, but she knew something was going on that was not right, saw the hatchet, it looked bright, the shawl was black, a large shawl, woolen, plain, with fringe, remained with Mr. McCandless until after the murder, 
Six weeks save one day after the occurrence. Now, this is not humorous whatsoever, but can we appreciate the fact that Anne opened the door, saw this dude in this long black cloak with a hatchet, and then just immediately shut the door? This witness repeated the incidents of the murder just as they were detailed by the former witnesses. She took a bit of the glass from the broken window out of the top of her own head next morning. A hatchet was shown to witness. She thinks it is like the hatchet used by the man that day, but is not so bright. Dr. McCandless sworn in, practicing physician and surgeon, who performed the post-mortem examination of Nancy Ann McCandless. Now, it doesn't say how they're related, but it is implied. The wounds were principally on the left side of the head. The left eye was destroyed. On the top of the head, a portion of the scalp or skull had been carried away. Witness never saw them. The internal organs were visible. On removing the scalp, several fractures in the cranium were revealed. Through one of them, which several sharp points of lead were protruding. On removing the skull, parts of the lead were found flattened on the inner side of the skull and lodged there. It was also discovered that portions of the skull had been carried into the brain. The most extensive laceration pressed in a transverse direction, backwards, large enough for witness to pass his fingers through. Several portions of it were removed from the skull, and witness had them here. The wounds were sufficient to cause death. In the examination, a portion of the skull about the size of a half dollar fell out. The infliction of the wounds and death would be occurrences of the same moment. The corpse was shrouded. It was on Monday morning, just before the funeral, and having ascertained the cause of death, did not pursue the examination or, seen or see wounds said to be in the shoulder. He here presented portions of bone taken from the skull. There were from 25 to 30 perforations. Cannot say whether the bits of lead were shot or slugs. It would appear that they were of a different sizes, else they would have been likely to go more together. Can form no opinion of the kind of gun used in projecting the lead. It was not the thicker portions of the skull that were fractured. The next witness called was a Mr. Daniel Graham, and I won't directly quote all of it because it's sort of all over the place, um, but the gist of it is, at one point, Taylor Hockenberry lived with Daniel Graham and his family, and this was during the incident where an intruder was covered with the black shawl and was holding a hatchet and was trying to break into the McCandless's house, and Coincidentally, Daniel's daughter owned a black shroud with fringe, so the same shawl that the intruder used, um, and it went missing mysteriously. Daniel also told the court how Taylor owned a shotgun, a pistol, and the same hatchet that was used during the hatchet shroud intruder incident. He also noted one more interesting thing that he was looking for shoe blacking, which I didn't talk about it in this podcast. Um, I've yet to talk about the Lizzie Warren case on this podcast, but 
on TikTok and during one of my lectures, I talk about how a man was covered in blood the day of the murders and was covering up blood on his shoes with shoe blacking. So that is interesting, I think. Unfortunately, the rest of this is cut off a bit because the original newspaper was copied and a lot of the words are cut off. But essentially, the he just noted that the time that the shawl went missing was the same day of the um, intruder incident at the McCandless house. And he noted that the prisoner had missed dinner. Thursday, April 22nd, 1869, fourth day of the trial. Prisoner this morning looks pale, but more collected than yesterday, when his agitation was pitiable, especially while Mary McCandless detailed the contents of the lost letters. Now, I wonder why he would look so nervous when the letters were recalled, you know, the fact that he was threatening to kill the person that he killed. Daniel also testified that during the murder, uh, Taylor was not at home. Um, he did return later, went up to bed. And not long after that, W.H. McCandless rode up to Daniel's house and told him that Mary Ann McCandless was shot and asked if he would go over there. Um, Daniel couldn't go over, but said that he would go up and wake up Taylor. Um, and he stated, Taylor was lying on his back, apparently asleep, said to him, Taylor, are you asleep? He said, yes, sleepy-like, then said, no, I am not. Told him, Nancy McCandless was shot dead. He said, is she? Who told you? I said, W.H. McCandless. He said, is she killed dead? And Daniel said, yes, she was killed dead and was lying on the floor. Told him he ought to get up and go over. So that was around 11 o'clock that the Graham household was told of the murder. Taylor hopped up on his horse and galloped around to spread the word of the murder. Came back home around 3 a.m. Um, they also note that he usually slept with his gun near his the head of the bed, but he had put it near the door, which is interesting. Daniel Graham also notes that he heard the sound of it hurt it sounded like Taylor was making slugs um up in his room before the murder, and then they later found marks on the floor of when they were dropping on the floor if that makes sense. The next witness called was Daniel Graham jr uh son of Daniel Graham, obviously does not remember hearing him say anything about making slugs. Recollects a conversation about a Robert Fogler, Fogler, convicted of murder in Washington County. Was talking with defendant about men being convicted on circumstantial evidence. And witness just referred to this case of Fogler. Spoke of him being convicted by ball extracted from the murdered man fitting his revolver and corresponding with the balls used by him. And defendant said if he were going to do a thing of that kind, he would use some of other kind of shot that he would have no others to correspond with. This is all witness recollects of the conversation at that time. Cannot recollect distinctly the time of conversation, but it was after the first shooting in Mr. McCandless's house. It was at witness's father's. Cannot say certain who introduced the subject. Do not know for certain if they were talking of the shooting at Mr. McCandless's. 
once was at his father's at the table, defendant came into the kitchen, remarked to him, "'When is that wedding coming off?' he said. "'What wedding?' I said. "'When are you and Annie McCandless going to be married?' He did not get time to reply until a young lady in the room, Elizabeth Smith, said that he was not going to get her, that Isaac Brannan had got ahead of him. He replied that if he didn't get her, that Isaac Brannan wouldn't. I said then to him, "'You think there is someone ahead of both of you?' He said no." but he was sure that Brannon would never get her. I saw that he was angry and said nothing more to him about it. He said nothing more at the time, would not say to a certainty when this conversation took place, but it was between the time the man had been to Mr. McCandless's with a shawl on and the time of the murder. I had at one time a conversation with him about the burning of the barn and shooting of the house. He said it was a pity Oliver Pizer should be blamed when he was sure he was innocent. I said, everybody blames him. Defendant upheld that it was not Pizer that was doing the mischief. Asked him how he knew it was not Pizer. Defendant just upheld that he was sure it was not him. This was the amount of the conversation at that time. He also noted that they discussed a criminal who had escaped jail and was captured. And Taylor said that if he were the criminal, he would get out of the country immediately. Interesting how he keeps putting himself in the shoes of the criminals. The next witness called was Isaac Brannan. Was at the Baptist church the evening Anne McCandless was killed. Passed her father's house about 7 o'clock. Saw Mr. McCandless and his two daughters, that's uh, Mary and Nancy Ann, taking some apples out of a wagon. Live a mile and a half from Mr. McCandless's. Saw no person near the house. Heard a noise on the side of the road like a person cocking a gun or pistol oh goodness this was about a half mile from mr mccandless's in the woods the sound appeared to be a few feet off the road in the woods inside the fence went a few rods and stopped but saw no one the woods extend up near mr mccandless's house the sound alarmed me a little and i walked further stopped and heard someone walk as if he took two steps at a time and stopped I walked off fast. The moon had not risen. It was dark. Had not been paying attention to Annie for some time, and not much then. Had no conversation with defendant on the subject. Interestingly, Taylor did live a mile and a half away through the woods. The next witness called was Mrs. Graham. Am the wife of Daniel Graham. His daughter, Rosanna, had a black shawl, a very large black shawl with fringe around it, do not know what became of it, brought it down in June, had sunned it once and put it back in the clothes press, searched for it the day after the crime, and have not been able to find it, was plaguing defendant about Annie McCandless, and heard him say, if he did not get her, no one else would get her. Me and Lizzie Scott were plaguing him. It was three or four weeks before Annie was killed. My stepson, Daniel, was not present, it was in the daytime. Prisoner interrogated before the corpse. Jacob Flagger sworn. Am constable who arrested defendant. Arrested him a short distance from Mr. McCandless's, about 10 or 11 o'clock on Sunday. He caught him by the collar and asked him, what made him do this? He said, who in the world blames me? 
This was after I put my hand on him and said he was my prisoner, got off my horse, and went on to the house with him, did not stay with him all the time, went after Mr. Graham. Think I heard all that was said to defendant after his arrest before going to Mr. Graham. It was not long before they took him into the room where deceased lay. Don't recollect what he said anything till he was questioned before the corpse. Mr. Wilson asked most of the questions, heard all but cannot remember. Defendant complained of not being well, had him by the arm. Think it was Mr. Wilson or Mr. Shannon who asked him where he was last night. It appears to me this was the first thing that was said. He was asked where he sat in church. There was nothing said to him until he answered. It was said to him that if anyone saw him at church, they would send for them. He was asked concerning some letters. He was asked by Squire Shannon, who had dismissed the church. That was about all. Do not think he answered as he ought to have done. Think no documents were held out. Sorry. Think no inducements were held out. Do not recollect of anyone speaking to him after his arrest until he was taken into the room where the corpse lay. Can we stop referring to her as a corpse? I'm not able to say if Mr. Wilson sat by him before he, he was taken into that room. Witness detailed the particulars of bringing prisoner to jail. He said nothing unless he was spoken to. Mr. McGall laid his hand on his shoulder and asked him if he had done this thing. Defendant said if he had done it, he would tell. Unsurprisingly, there were no witnesses to give him an alibi for the time of the murder. Friday, April 23rd, 1869, the fifth day of the trial. The prisoner is more calm this morning, but pale and trembling. Much of this seems to rise from natural bashfulness. When forgetting the many eyes on him and becoming interested in something outside of himself, he looks up with a very bright and good expression, Ew, what is he thinking about? A Mr. James Wilson interrogated Taylor Hockenberry after the murder. And one of the things he asked was about the letters. Asked him if he recollected of writing any. Wouldn't say to whom, whether to Anne McCandless, but she was in witness's mind. Said that he had written a couple of letters the question was then, if witness recollected, what was in these letters? Reply was, if witness recollects, what I meant, or just about what I meant. So, you're agreeing that what you said to her in those letters, saying that you will kill her, you meant that. Squire Shannon had also interrogated him and asked him where he was the night of the murder. His reply was, at church. Then he was questioned by Squire Shannon as to whom he had seen at church and who preached. Thanks, the reply was, Mr. Woodruff. The next interrogatory was, who prayed or closed the services? Does not recollect. The answer, someone said, Taylor, we would like you to tell us someone you saw at church or someone who would be likely to see you there and we will send for them. He studied a little bit, if I recollect, and said he could not think of any person, for he was unwell. After further study, named W.M. English, he named Mr. Graham and family as knowing he started for church. This conversation was in the presence of the deceased. Cannot state that defendant knew what letters were referred to. 
think he referred to the night he was in church as the time he was unwell, and that this was the reason he could not remember who saw him. W.M. English is a boy, son of John English, is about 14, an intelligent boy. There was a death-like stillness in court while this testimony was given, and a great appearance of solemnity. So this English boy who supposedly would be able to prove an alibi was now in Missouri. Witness was at the inquest and recollects the substance of what English swore in that examination, was asked to state what it was. Commonwealth objected, objection sustained. So that's interesting. The mother of the murdered girl sits day after day, facing and looking at the prisoner. So eventually they did talk about what William English had said at the inquest. And he said, I saw Taylor Hockenberry at church. I did not see him when we first went in. Don't recollect how long a time it was till I saw him there, but it was not long. Mr. Woodruff was preaching when I first saw him. I could not tell when he left church. So apparently the Commonwealth objected this because, first, it is hearsay evidence and incompetent. Second, it is not legitimate cross-examination. Third, William English, the person referred to, was not examined before the inquest, and his testimony is no part thereof. Now, that's interesting, because the other dude just said that it was. Fourth, the person referred to is in full life and could be produced, and his statements, declarations, or evidence could not be given in evidence in any stage of this trial. But I think it's interesting because he said, supposedly he said he saw him at church, but he couldn't say what time he left. So I think either way, it looks bad for Taylor. Oh, shit. Reverend Woodruff sworn. While he gives details about the church services that evening, let the reporter notice the bereaved mother's steady stare into the pale face of the prisoner, her sister's orphan son explanation point. Her little face, round and rosy as a winter apple, is lighted by small dark eyes, sharp as gimblets, and with them she bores defendant through and through, steadily, vindictively. Hour after hour, day after day, she sits and bores, and no shade of regret or sorrow or sympathy or compassion ever crosses her features. When one reflects that this boy was a member of her family, on good and friendly terms, up to the hour of arrest, it is beyond comprehension. So I was looking forward to the tea from Reverend Woodruff, but it looks like the prosecution objected, oh my god, I keep doing this, objected, and the objection was sustained, which sucks for us. Um, it did say, witness rose and made a speech insisting that he must tell the whole truth. But they didn't let him. And then they moved on to the next witness, which is annoying. Dr. Richardson, who assisted with the postmortem exam, was next sworn. Found wounds on deceased's head made by 25 to 35 small pieces of lead. Great force had been applied to create the wounds. Cranium was shattered and one eye destroyed. 
During the sickening description of the mangled head, the mother wept and laid her head on the back of her chair. The prisoner kept his hand to his forehead, and that deep purple shade spread over his face. He never raised his eyes from the table. Witness thinks the wounds were inflicted by a shotgun. They would cause instant death. Cross-examination. The large wound might have been made by a large ball or several small ones. By saying a shotgun meant that a large gun must have been used, that a pistol would not have given sufficient force. Elizabeth Scott, sworn, was living last fall with Squire Graham, is acquainted with defendant, heard him say that if he did not get her, no one else should. We were plaguing him. I told him if he didn't take care, Isaac Brannan would take her from him. He named three young men that went to see her, and none of them would get her, and that if he did not get her, none of them would. The young men were Isaac Brannan, William Curry, and John McGinnis. Um, get it, girl. This was not very long before Annie was killed. Mrs. Graham was present. Cross-examination. It was about three weeks before the murder. It was before witness heard of the man being in Mr. McCandless's house. Believe it was six weeks. This next part, the uh, newspaper writer creatively titled Monomania. And if you didn't know what that was, like myself, it's an exaggerated or obsessive enthusiasm for or preoccupation with one thing. So like an obsession. It was singular to note the expression of prisoner's face during the giving of this testimony. He looked up at her, smiling. A wild light in his eyes must have been either unusual pleasure at seeing and hearing witness or triumph in the thought that no one had got his beloved. Ew! Ew! No! Twice before this time, his face has suggested monomania, and at each time it was when witnesses were testifying to his having made this declaration. His eyes are large, well-formed, and well-set, much the best feature in his face, and very expressive. Can we stop complimenting him, and can we stop with the narrative that he loved her? He clearly did not, plus they were cousins, and she didn't like him. Okay, and rant by. Afternoon session. Bereaved mother took her seat and resumed her boring. Now, that's not funny, but the fact that he wrote that is a little funny. Uh, a Mr. John White was sworn. He apparently was sitting near W.M. English, saw W.M. English um, at the church, but did not see Taylor Hockenberry. Weird. Um, Edward White was also sworn was at the church, was in the same area that Taylor Hockenberry supposedly sat, did not see him, quote, would have known him. Finally, we are coming to the conclusion of this trial. This is some of what the judge said. On the night of the 3rd of October, 1868, in the township of Franklin in this county, at the house of her father, George McCandless, while sitting at the table with her parents, sister, and friend, Sometime after dark, eating her supper, Miss Nancy Ann McCandless was shot with some deadly weapon, the contents of which penetrated her head, face, and neck, which resulted in her death. 
Her friends around her heard the report of the firearm and saw her lifeless body fall to the floor, unconscious and unable to know what brought about her untimely end. The evidence clearly establishes that the weapon was fired from the outside of the house by a person whom the witness supposes had secreted himself in the darkness of the night near a bush which stood a few feet from the window behind which it is supposed he was shaded from the light from the window until he executed his terrible purpose. The window glass was perforated by the missile of death, making a hole perhaps two inches in extent, and what was not received in her body entered the door beyond where she had sat. A portion of the wad was found on the floor, within a short distance from where she lay, and a post-mortem examination resulted in the belief that her death was brought about by gun or pistol, and the wound upon her body, the surgeons say, was sufficient to produce death. From the evidence, it appears at the time of the occurrence, the defendant was living with Daniel Graham, Esquire, within a mile and a half of the father of the deceased, that he had been working there for a period of two years, working upon the farm from day to day, doing those matters usually transacted by hired persons, that he was treated by Mr. Graham and his family as a member thereof, and was allowed the ordinary familiarities in which he lived, that prior thereto he had lived in the family of Mr. McCandless for some time, that he was a relative of Mrs. McCandless, being the son of her half-sister, that he was intimate with the members of the family, treated as one of them up to the time of his leaving there, and still continued to go back and forth to the house, and particularly on Sunday, and partook of their hospitality whenever he happened to be there at mealtime. The Commonwealth contends that being in the immediate neighborhood, he had the opportunity, if he desired, to commit the deed, that he was the owner of firearms, of a gun and pistol, some of which he was in the habit of carrying with him, and that he was well acquainted with the use of them, that having been well acquainted with the property of Mr. McCandless, his familiarity with its external and internal arrangements, and frequently visiting the family, he was enabled to mature his plans with faculty to execute them, that on the night of the fatal occurrence, he left the house of Mr. Graham when it was getting dark and did not return until a short time after the people of the family, that during the time he was prowling about the premises of Mr. McCandless, awaiting a proper opportunity to accomplish his purpose, and finding the family sitting at the supper table in a favorable position, discharged the weapon which produced the fatal shot, that afterward, if he had went to the Baptist church, which allegation is denied, he had still enough time to have accomplished his purpose and get to the church, and remain long enough to have been seen by the witness English, but that if he was there, it was so short a time that he was not seen by anyone but English. The Commonwealth further contends that the defendant had, in consequence of his intimacy and intercourse in the family of Mr. McCandless, become enamored of the deceased, Miss McCandless, who, it is alleged, did not favor his addresses, that he wrote letters to her, which he received and would not reply to, that these letters contained threats to take her life. If he could not possess her himself, he would deprive any other of their expectations, and that the fatal deed was perpetrated to prevent any other person from enjoying her as a companion for life. Verdict of the Jury 
The jury went out at 20 minutes to 12 o'clock, and the court adjourned. At 20 minutes to 2, the bell rang to give notice that they had made up their minds. The room was soon densely packed with eager, excited people. The judges took their seats. The prisoner was brought in. The jury came and took their seats, and the crier opened court. The jury and prisoner were ordered to stand up and look upon each other. Jury, look upon the prisoner. Prisoner, look upon the jury. He was directed to hold up his hand. The clerk asked, Gentlemen, how do you find? Who shall speak for you? The foreman said, faintly, guilty of murder in the first degree, and handed the sealed verdict to the court. Mr. Thompson called for the poll. The clerk called over their names, and each one replied, guilty of murder in the first degree. The prisoner bore it better than he has done many portions of his trial, shook hands with his guardian and counsel, and went away with the sheriff. The jury was discharged. The audience dispersed. Prisoner's counsel moved for a new trial. The motion was entertained. The court was adjourned until the second Monday of June, and this act of the drama has ended. The Judge's Statement to the Prisoner Z. Taylor Hockenberry, you have been tried and convicted of murder in the first degree, which was judiciously ascertained by a verdict of your fellow citizens of the highest respectability. Your triers were men carefully selected by you, with the assistance of faithful and intelligent counsel. All of the forms of law were carefully observed in selecting the jury. You were, during the trial, allowed every right and all doubtful questions which arose in the investigation and presented to the court were ruled in your behalf. It is true no human eye saw you commit the terrible deed. Yet a webwork of circumstances so surrounded your conduct as to lead the jury to the conclusion that you took the life of Nancy Ann McCandless in the darkness of the night by means of a deadly weapon while sitting at her father's table where you had frequently been permitted to partake of the hospitality of your uncle and her society. You forgot that the eye of God was fixed upon you. He who suffers not a sparrow to fall without his notice observed your act. You committed the foul deed of taking away the life of one you loved because she could not reciprocate your feelings. And to have permitted jealousy to have taken possession of your judgment and precipitate you into the commission of an awful homicide and to be avenged of her because she would not consent to become your wife. Your act was not that of sudden impulse, but a deep-seated deliberation and well-formed design to take her life. However much you desired and endeavored to obtain consent to become your partner for life, her refusal to respond left you without cause for the perpetration of the fatal deed. I recur not thus briefly to the facts of this case, to wound your feelings, or add one pang to your grief, for the afflicting hand of an offended God is pressing heavily upon you. Before the lifeless corpse of your victim was conveyed to the narrow tomb prepared for the living, the officers of the law were on your track, and you were outtaken and have been condemned, and the sword of justice trembles over you and is about to fall on your guilty head." You are about to try the realities of a never-ending eternity, and I beseech you not to rest upon the hope of a pardon through executive clemency, which may never be realized. Let me entreat you, by every consideration, 
to reflect and remember your situation, we are all taught by holy right that there is no one who can truly pardon and wash away our guilt, however great it may be. I adjure you to fly to him in this, your hour of peril. It only remains for me to pass the judgment of the law. The judges, members of the bar, and spectators all rise to their feet. Which is that you, Zachary Taylor Hockenberry, the prisoner at the bar, be taken from hence to the jail of the county of Butler, from whence you came, and from thence to the place of execution, and that you there be hanged by the neck until you are dead, and may God have mercy on your soul. Pittsburgh Weekly Gazette, September 13th, 1869. The Intelligencer Journal, Thursday, November 25th, 1869. Z. Taylor Hockenbury, convicted of the murder of Mary McCandless, now that is a misprint, it's Nancy Ann McCandless, and George Dilbane, convicted of horse-stealing, attempted to escape from the Butler County Jail a few days ago. Hockenbury, it appears, had made a key out of a bone with which the doors were open. The attempt was frustrated by a girl employed in the family of the jailer. Now, what kind of bone was that? I hope they mean chicken. Harrisburg Telegraph, November 6, 1869. Zachary Taylor Hockenberry, convicted of murder in Butler County. Execution to take place at Butler on Tuesday, December 7, 1869. Confession of Hockenberry. On the 31st of last March, I was 21 years old. My father and mother are dead. My mother died when I was quite young, and my father has been dead for over eight years. When I was 13 years old, I went to live with George McCandless, who was married to a half-sister of my mother. I lived with him about five years and afterwards went to work for Daniel Graham and worked for him about two years and a half. Some time ago, I wrote down on paper the chief circumstances of my life, and the result they brought about, and was printed in the papers. There are a few other circumstances which I shall now speak about, for I wish all to be known, and I shall speak about them shortly, but before I speak about them I will state when I went to work for Mr. Graham, Mr. McCandless had two daughters at home, the oldest being Nancy Ann. Sometime before I left Mr. McCandless, I got a thought that I would take some chance and disfigure her face in some way. That thought and wish had caused a great deal of trouble in different ways, of which I am sorry for. What put the thought in my head I cannot positively say, but as I think about the past, it is now my belief that before I left McCandless's, I read in a book called The History of the World about a woman, a girl, who some persons for some design disfigured her face, when I got this thought, I had no wish for to marry Aunt Annie, nor there were no persons paying any attention to her. What an asshole. The motive is indistinct and confused in my mind, but it is my belief that I thought if she was disfigured, she would not get married at any time. From the time I got this thought, it was in my mind nearly all the time, and at last became my intention that I would never see her married to another person, 
and I think I told her so, or at least she understood so, but I never asked her to marry me, nor made any proposals to her, anything more than she one time said she never would marry anyone. If I could only have been certain of that, it would have saved a great deal of trouble. I hate you. As it was my wish for to disfigure her, it caused a great deal of trouble by the circumstances which it caused. These circumstances I some time ago carefully wrote down on paper and was printed, which I need not speak about now in particular. I am very sorry for it, but it is past. I hate you. The circumstances was in this way. I had a shotgun. It was called a smoothbore rifle. Would shoot shot or bullets. It was not a very large bore. It would shoot shot without scattering very much. One Sunday in September, I made some slugs. I made them out of back of the house and made them with a hatchet. Then went upstairs. The gun was upstairs. It was loaded with powder and a paper wad. I then put the slugs in paper and put them in the gun. There might have been some of the slugs that I did not put in paper. When put in paper, they would not scatter. My intention was for to go up to Mr. McCandless's some night and go to some window that I could shoot Annie across the face in such a way as to disfigure her. This one thought was in my mind from the time I left Mr. McCandless's and caused different occurrences to take place. I think it was on Thursday night, after dark, the 1st of October, I got the gun out without any of the Grahams knowing it, and took it to the barn. On Friday night, I think, there was preaching at the Baptist meeting house. I went away in the evening, and said I was going to church, went to the barn and got the gun, which I went down the road about a quarter of a mile. My nose got to bleeding. I then went back, put the gun in the barn, and went into the house. Some of the Grahams asked me why I did not go to church. I said because my nose got to bleeding. The next night, the 3rd of October, I went away in the evening and said I was going to church. There was church at the Baptist Meeting House. The Meeting House is about a mile from Graham's house. When I went out of the house, I went to the barn and got the gun. Went down through Mr. Graham's meadow, then through Jacob Campbell's meadow, then on a road which goes up past McCandless's house. When I got on the road, I went up past John Stolen's house, and then past where Oliver Pryor used to live, and then to George McCandless's house. I heard someone coming down the road, and I then got over the fence and went below the road. The person was Isaac Brannan. About this time, I believe I heard someone talking outside the house and saw a light. The persons who were talking outside of the house soon went in. I then went down to the house and looked in a window. Before this, a while, the moon arose and was shining bright. When I looked in the window, they were eating supper. I saw Annie. She was sitting with the left side of her face to the window. When I saw her sitting as I was, I then thought I had as good a chance as I could get, that I could disfigure her as I wished. I then fired through the window, so as, I thought, to shoot her across the face. Oh, my God. I then left. As I was going away, I heard a noise like chairs being moved in a hurry, and like someone might have fallen to the floor. When I got down to Graham's, I got the gun put away without them knowing it. That night, after I got to bed, I heard Mr. Graham talking to someone outside the house. Soon after and before I had got to sleep, I heard Mr. Graham coming up the stairs. When he came up, he told me that Annie McCandless was shot dead. I do not know hardly what I said. 
for I had an idea that I had missed her altogether when I shot through the window. That night, when I went away from McCandless's house, I went to Graham's through the woods. When I was going, I was afraid that I might have more than disfigured her when I thought of the noise like someone falling to the floor. Yet I could not think she was killed after having it in my mind so long only to disfigure her. The next day, which was Sunday, I was arrested. On the 19th of April, 1868, my trial commenced, and the jury returned a verdict of guilty in the first degree. The first summer, I worked for Mr. Graham. For some reason, I felt downhearted and melancholy. One day, I felt as if I would rather be dead than living. I was out making a ditch for some water to run in. I was working with a spade. When I was working, I broke the spade. I then left so bad about how things was and how much bother I caused that I intended for to kill myself and also for to kill Annie McCandless. I intended for to get a revolver, then for to shoot her, and then for to shoot myself. I went one day for to get a revolver, but did not get one. The thought afterwards went out to my mind, and as I said before after my trial, the jury returned a verdict of guilty in the first degree. On the 10th of September, 1869, I was sentenced to death, and as I said before, and shall for to tell the truth, I never fired that shot with the intention for to kill Annie McCandless, nor could I not say otherwise with a certain knowledge of eternity before me. For on the 10th of this month, November, 1869, I heard the death warrant from the governor. We all must die sometime, sooner or later. Life is uncertain and death is sure. May all forgive me who I have wronged. Fuck you. And I would ask the prayers of all good people and may God forgive me. Those who have been friends to me, I think. May they remember me and know that I thank them for the kindness they have shown me. I am sorry for that one thought that caused so much trouble, but it was not my intention for to kill Annie McCandless. That was still fucking horrible. I am sorry. I wish I had never seen the light of this world to be troubled to myself and others. This is now all I have to say. Uh, I would have to agree that it would be better if you were not born. Honestly. His last night and morning on earth. The time fixed for the execution of Hawkenberry was between 10 and 3 o'clock today. It took place in the jail yard, surrounded by high walls, and looked gloomy and dilapidated enough. The convict had, apparently few fears of death, and betrayed little anxiety as this his last day on earth approached. He retired early last night after preparing a statement to be published after the execution. He slept soundly until about 3 o'clock this morning, when he awoke and rose from his bed and paced up and down the cell, his hands behind his back, evidently deep in meditation, and seeming for the first time impressed with a sense of the awful doom that awaited him. After some time spent in this way, he sat down and wrote several short letters to the relations of the girl he murdered. Oh my God, no, leave them alone. Among them, one to Charles McCandless, asking for forgiveness. Hockenberry then retired and slept until awakened by Sheriff Thompson, who informed him that Reverend Charles Morin was waiting to be admitted. He arose, dressed himself with scrupulous care, and upon the entrance of the minister, received him affectionately, remarking that he was well aware how near death was. The two engaged in prayer for some time, the doomed man appearing in 
excellent spirits and prepared to meet the dreadful fate that awaited him. Hockenberry ate breakfast sparingly. After taking it, several persons among whom were Assistant District Attorney Riddle and his counsel with several friends were allowed to converse a short time with him and bid a final adieu. The condemned man seemed considerably depressed after their departure and persisted in reminding the minister that his intention was not to murder the victim, but merely to disfigure her in such a manner as to render marriage with another impossible. He rallied again, however, and expressed a wish to Sheriff Thompson to be executed at 11 o'clock as the suspense caused a continual agony. The hour set apart by the sheriff was 3 o'clock in the afternoon, allowing the convict the longest time granted him by him who signed the death warrant. The sheriff hesitated, but upon being pressed, acceded to the request and commenced making preparations. The Execution Accordingly, at the hour named, the sheriff announced that everything was in readiness. The hands of Hockenberry were then bound, and he was conducted to the scaffold. A brief prayer was offered up after the rope was affixed to his neck. He seemed for an instant to falter, but quickly recovered his composure. The signal was given, and the spirit of the murderer faced that of the murdered in the presence of God. The New York Herald, December 8th, 1869. Let's talk about this man's burial. A murderer's body, and this is per the Philadelphia Inquirer, December 29th, 1869. It is refused a resting place and finds its way to the dissecting room. Several days ago, we recorded the execution of Zachariah Taylor Hockenberry, convicted of the heinous crime of slaying his fair cousin, the object of his heart's holiest affection. Now, I don't know about holy. We thought that that chapter would end the terrible volume of sin, infatuation, and wickedness, but not so. When the cold and rigid corpse was cut down, the question of a Christian burial occurred. There were friends present who demanded and received the lifeless remains of the murderer, and hustled in a rude and tawdry coffin, they were driven with a brisk and careless trot to the prospect burial ground. Here, just as the corpse was about to be lowered to a last and final resting place, a posse of men, who had not a shadow of charity in their souls, made their appearance and objected and positively refused to permit the remains of the cold-blooded and unfortunate murderer to repose beneath the shade of the cypress trees of Prospect. I mean, I don't think he deserves cypress trees either. The corpse was then again crowded into the rude country hearse, and with a still brisker trot, the ride to the next burial place was made. St. Clair Cemetery, a small though enchanting village of the dead, that's poetic, was the objective point. Thither, over rough roads, the hearse hurried. The terrestrial garden of the deceased owned a lot in the ground. Terrestrial garden, guardian of the deceased. Wow, is it garden? Yikes. And he defiled all powers to keep him from depositing therein the remains of the unfortunate dead client. The grave was dug. The sexton was there with the necessary straps to lower the coffin, 
and the spade to hurl earth upon earth and forever hide decaying mortality. The solemn prayer had been uttered, and the murderer's bones were about to be lowered, when gray-haired and venerable trustees appeared and proclaimed that the murderer's bones must rest elsewhere. They had made up their verdict, and the guilty, blood-stained murderer of his fair and pretty cousin, though cold and powerless in death, was blankly refused a place to sleep, the sleep of death, in the secluded churchyard of St. Clair. Well, that is too bad. Again, the rude coffin was lifted, and with more impatience than tenderness, was thrust into the hearse, and again the horses were whipped into a lively trot. The day had waned, and night was about the driver and his attendants, as a quiet and lonely spot in the dreary wilderness outskirting the pretty town of Butler was reached. And, in the light of the pale moon, a trench two feet deep and six feet long, yikes, was thrown up, and the body of Zachariah Taylor Hockenberry was solemnly deposited. The tall trees waved and moaned a requiem, and the overtasked undertaker heaved a sigh as he stuck a fragment of wood over the grave to mark the spot, and leaped into the box with the irate driver, and rubbing his hands, expressed his thanks that the murderer had at last found a place to rest his head to death. Um, wow, I like how it just gets they get more and more frustrated and it gets more and more sloppy but two feet into the ground uh does not sound like a good idea we have left the corpse of the murderer quietly reposing in a sequestered spot of the woods but others were not content to leave him to enjoy the solitude of death as rumor has it a young physician of this city got word of the negligent burial and with a professional ardor quite refreshing he reported the fact to his brother limbs and inasmuch as the dissecting room was barren of a good, healthy subject since Frick died on the gallows, an excursion was at once arranged to the woods near Butler. Lamps, picks, and shovels in the hands of a quartet of fearless students were the results of a prolonged dead room discussion. As Freeport, these gallant enthusiasts of science procured a light two-horse wagon and set forth to secure the prize. The spot was reached just as the shadow of night was setting, and a few vigorous efforts exposed, in all its weirdness, the coffin of the deceased, quick as thought it was robbed of its contents. Wow, grave robbers. Told you two feet <laughs> was not enough. The stiff, muscular body, let's not give him compliments, was snatched and crowded into a bag, in which many a corpse had previously found place. Homeward came the party as fast as the spanking team could bring them. At Freeport, they had to await a train, and the death bag attracted some little attention, which was diverted by the boldest of the grave robbers, assuring the curious that it contained nothing but potatoes. No, no. Oh, my God. As potatoes, it was entered on the train, but fearful of discovery, the ringleader of the executionists rode to Allegheny in the baggage car astride the corpse. In the old, dilapidated-looking building, with green shutters that have not admitted a ray of light to the interior for a full decade of years, a building that is gorged from cellar to attic with dry bones and human skulls, the mortal remains of the executed murderer found place. The keen knife of science made quick work of the corpses, and the hideous, grinning, fleshless skull sits in place on the table of one of our prominent physicians. 
Hockenberry on earth means nothing now. His boiled and bleached bones may rattle a mortal in the dissecting room, but his grossly violated grave will not speak of the sins and faults and misdeeds of the corpse once permitted to rest thereunder. Science has captured the murderer and death, and may the living profit from the knowledge derived at the point of the too-ready dissecting knife, which makes no distinction between old or young, rich or poor, wicked or good. Holy shit. This is the original newspaper clipping that came with the photograph. Park Cemetery will be historical spot. A small cemetery in Franklin Township containing the victim of the last man to be hung for murder in the county will be maintained as a historical memorial as the result of an agreement in a condemnation award filed today. The report filed by viewers also recommended $21,500 be paid Mr. and Mrs. Joseph Pigiani for the 96-acre farm property condemned by the General State Attorney for the Moraine State Park. In addition to the cemetery, the property contained a frame house, barn, and other outbuildings. The cemetery containing seven to nine graves is not subject to condemnation, according to statutes governing action of the GSA. The cemetery contains the grave of Miss Nancy Ann McCandless, who was killed October 3, 1868, by a rejected suitor. Zachary Taylor Hockenberry was convicted of the crime and hung at the Butler County Jail December 7, 1869. The 20th century history of Butler County re- relates. His crime was caused by jealousy. Intending to disfigure the face of Miss McCandless, he fired at her with a rifle through a window while the family was sitting at supper. His aim was too true, however, and instead of disfiguring the object of his affections, he killed her instantly. Viewers in the condemnation proceedings were Clark H. Painter, Russell S. Mitchell, and Earl F. Harold. Attorneys in the case were Lee C. McCandless for the property owners and Charles T. Chu for the state. Now, why do so many articles say that he was a suitor? He was not a suitor. She did not like him. They were cousins. Stop this narrative, please. Nancy Ann McCandless was harassed by her cousin, Zachary Taylor Hockenberry. She received letters threatening her life. He dressed in a long black shroud and broke into her home with a hatchet. She woke to bullets firing into her bedroom, narrowly missing her and her younger sister. He burned down the family barn, the barn belonging to the same family who treated him like family. And Taylor Hockenberry thanked them by brutally ending the life of his cousin, Nancy Ann McCandless. And still, sources will say he was a spurned lover and that he died for love. The facts presented in this episode clearly show that that is false. Let's stop with the false narrative. Let's do our research. Let's remember the life of Nancy Ann McCandless. And that, my friends, 
is the end of the episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I didn't intend for the episode to be this long, but I'm a nerd and I like to see all the information, so hopefully you were right there with me. Um, I tried not to include every single detail, but uh, there's, there's just so much that I thought was relevant and I thought was interesting. So hopefully you <laughs> hung in there with me. But if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to leave a review. If not, you don't have to leave a review. But um, I hope you have a great day anyway. Um, just a final thought. So when you go to find a grave where she is buried in her memorial, it says, Murdered, age 22, by ex-boyfriend Zachary Taylor Hockenberry. Now that is obviously, hopefully, you guys know after an hour and a half of listening to me that that is completely false. So I wonder if there is a way I can change that on Find a Grave. But anyway, thanks again for listening. I will be posting some photos to the Axe Murder Diaries Instagram page, including the photograph and the original article that I obtained that inspired this case for me to cover. All right. Thanks again. Bye.